So last time we're going to start um, it's it's possible that we'll probably cover one to maximum two verses today but we'll see how things develop uh, last time there was a question towards the end by Abul Hassan on what are some of the things or some of the conditions that one should consider when they take someone else as their sheikh because we had that uh, as one of the opening points last week and uh, I, I tried to dig around a little bit and I found some things here and there. I think it's important to kind of mention that when we talk about taking someone as your sheikh in this context, in the context that we were talking about it before, this is not purely an intellectual endeavor. This is actually more of a, a spiritual discipline and training endeavor than it is an intellectual one. So if we're talking about someone that you're going to take as a sheikh of ta'lim, as we talked about last time, the sheikh of knowledge, that's different. You know, basically someone who has... Uh, the first condition here, basically, is someone... Or the first two. Someone who's learned from uh, institutions or people who are well-known. And they have some sort of pure recognition and acknowledgement of their, their status and their level of learning. And then, of course, that they have taqwa and so on. So that's for the person of knowledge. But for the one who you take as a sheikh who's going to kind of like help you... Or a sheikh, theoretically help you go down the path of spiritual development and elevation, then one of the answers that I found to this question was from Shawaliullah Dehnawi, uh, Rahimahullah. And uh, he gave five. So we're not going to spend too much time on it, but just since it was a question that came up, I'll answer it quickly, and then we'll move on. So the first one that he gave is that the individual must be knowledgeable in the Qur'an, the Hadith, and the opinions of the scholarly community. So you don't take someone who's... Uh, that person should be learned. They should be... If you're going to trust them, they should be someone who knows what they're talking about uh, in this realm. They should know the Qur'an, they should know the Hadith, they should know the opinions of scholars in interpreting the Qur'an and Hadith, and so on. So this is number one. And they should have spent time with people of knowledge. You know, Not just that they read the books by themselves and then they thought that they understood and they have knowledge of these things now, but that they spent time in the scholarly community. Uh, number two is that they should have adala and taqwa. So basically they should be people who are upright and trustworthy and they fear Allah and they have good character and conduct because essentially what we're talking about here, you're going to have the behaviors and the qualities of the people that you spend time with. And if you're going to take someone as your teacher in this level, then it shouldn't only be an intellectual issue. It should be someone who really their conduct and their character and their consciousness of Allah are so clear and apparent that you, you know, it has an impact on you and that they can be trusted, you know, in that way. Which, of course, that means they stay away from major sins and they are not continuous in minor sins, as we may have spoken about before. Uh, number three is that this individual strives for the hereafter and abstains from the allures of this world, that they are steadfast and uh, practicing the emphasized sunnas and they make the dhikr that are mentioned in the hadith and so on and their heart is constantly connected to Allah. So the person is not a person of this, of, of worldly means. 
Uh, it doesn't mean that they have to be poor per se. It just means that they shouldn't be like it shouldn't be a hustle. Basically, they shouldn't be doing it just to make money. They shouldn't be doing it just to be popular or powerful. Or because you see this a lot of times, it just basically feels like, you know, uh, you. I don't want to say it that way because it could become disparaging. But you can see how this could become problematic. That if someone is doing this for worldly reasons, it can be problematic. So it should be something that has to do with the hereafter. Um, there is a story actually that I came across in the book that I was reading of, of one student who went to the sheikh and he wanted to learn from him. And uh, the sheikh wanted to test the person's sincerity. So when the person came, they, he was treating him really nicely and everything else. And he liked to care of him, give him nice food and everything. And he sat him down in a nice chair and he actually sat at his feet. And then he brought a bunch of money and he put it in front of the student. And he was like, this is for you, for coming here to study and so on and so forth. And then the student was like, I didn't come here for this. I came here for actually, you know, like what you have that's not of this world. And then he was like, okay, now go to the barn and clean up. <laughs> if that's what you came for, you passed the test, now go do that. So it was a, it was a heavy-duty story, we'll put it that way. I won't test you with it. Number four is that uh, they only order that which is permissible, and they only prohibit that which is forbidden. You know, basically the idea is they're not going to order you to do something that's not allowed. If they do that, then that would be a sign that uh, that's obviously very problematic. Um, and they shouldn't be kind of like the personality who's trying to please everybody. Should They should know what's right and not be trying to displease people. Like they shouldn't be abrasive or obnoxious or anything like that. But it's not like they're going to just blow with the wind type thing. Uh, and the fifth is that they should have themselves been in the company of an established and genuine mentor for an extended period of time. So they should have themselves gone through a similar process uh, where they spent time with someone of piety and they learned from them over an extended period of time. And you see this in scholarship as well as in issues of spiritual refinement. Uh, in, in the past, you would see it a lot more. You know, like Abu Hanifa spent something like 20 years with his teacher. And Abu Yusuf spent something like 20 years with Abu Hanifa. You know, these were, these were long-term relationships. Um, he, he made specific uh, point to mention that they do not have to perform miracles and they do not have to be like unemployed, you know, so actually you're required by the Sharia to work if you have an, a necessity to do so, so that's not part of it. So these are just some things to keep in mind. So let's go on to the poem. We're on verse 22 uh, in the translation. So, قال المصنف رحمه الله تعالى ونفعنا الله وإياه بعلوم في الدارين واخشد السائس من جوع ومن شبع فرب مخمصة شر من التخمي uh, Yeah, we'll stop there. So this first one, it says, Fear the insidious snares of hunger and of Satiety. Is that how you say it? We were having this discussion in the car yesterday. I can't figure out how to say this word. And then you start thinking about pronunciation in English, and English is such a problematic language when it comes to pronunciation. So fear, watch out for the insidious snares of hunger and of being satisfied. For being hungry is sometimes worse than having gorged. So the first half of it is that you should fear... Um, hunger as well as lack of hunger 
uh, and then he says, for being hungry is sometimes worse than having gorged. So we're going to, that's, that's something that needs to be unpacked a little bit. The first half is clear. The second half is a little bit less clear. So the first point is that, as we mentioned before, hunger and controlling food is considered one of the main elements of purifying and disciplining the soul. So we talked about last week how, for example, one of the sets of ways to discipline the soul is to eat less and to speak less and to sleep less and to be patient over what comes when you deal with people. So eating less was one of those things. Uh, but there are also other ways. Um, these, are some, these are some methods. You know, Some methods revolve around doing these things, eating less, speaking less, sleeping less, so on to discipline the self. Um, but there's another beautiful quote that my wife shared with me from Sheikh Ninui, may Allah preserve him, about service. So I'm going to read you this quote. I think it's very beautiful because being in the service of others is also a way to draw closer to Allah. And it can be actually a very important means of drawing closer to Allah. So he said, everybody wants to go after knowledge, so people will say that they are knowledgeable. Everyone wants to go about it. Go to ilm, so then people will say this person is an alim. And everybody wants to go to dhikr, so people will say this person is a dhakir, or someone who makes a lot of dhikr. MashaAllah, you never see them, and their prayer beads aren't with them. You never see them, and their tongue's not moving, and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, let me go off on a, on a tangent. You know, sometimes you, there's people, so ideally, there's people who make a lot of dhikr and nobody knows they're making dhikr. So there's one shaykh that we heard this story about, that he was in a gathering, and he wasn't really saying much, you know, people were talking and whatever, and one of the brothers realized that the shaykh was actually making dhikr the whole time, because, not because he saw him doing it, like, in very outward fashion, but because when he got up, he happened to have like a different angle towards the person's face so he could see that actually his tongue was moving even though his mouth wasn't moving. So the idea is that you don't have to always put it in front of people, right? So everybody wants to go after dhikr, so people will say that they are from the people of dhikr. But not many people want to go behind the door of service because people think service is indignifying and you know you will only find Allah with those who are broken for Him. In service, no one wants to recognize you. They don't look at people who serve, people who clean, people don't see them. These people who serve namelessly and selflessly, they are the closest to Allah. That's what the Messenger of Allah said in authentic hadith. The closest are those who serve namelessly. This is not the actual text of the hadith, but the meaning of a number of them. The closest are those who serve namelessly and selflessly. The closest way to Allah is service. The shortest way to Allah is service. In service, nobody recognizes you. That's why it's closest to Allah. May Allah make us from those who are in the service of others. Amin. So this is a beautiful statement, I think, from, from the shaykh. That gives us um, other angles as well. So one person may be serving Islam through knowledge. Someone else might be serving Islam through, through dhikr or, or, or whatever it might be. Someone else might be serving Islam through community organizing. Someone else might be serving Islam through taking care of their family. Someone else might be serving Islam through going to work and being a good person. Whatever it might be, everyone has their own particular individual obligations. And uh, we should recognize that the doors to, to the closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are many. And so whichever ones are in front of us, then we seek to take them inshaAllah. Uh, Imam al-Bajuri, he says that this hunger, the insatiety that's mentioned in the verse could refer to actual physical hunger and satiation or it could refer to worship. 
So he's saying, uh, you know, beware of a little bit of worship and beware of a lot of worship. Because sometimes a lot of worship is worse than a little bit. And the idea there is, as we'll come to later, that someone might be doing what is right, and then doing what is right actually leads them to a more serious illness, which would be ostentation. You know, so, uh, like, um, regardless of one's position on pants above or below the ankles, it's not the point. So don't get caught on the particular, that's not the point. But one of the people were saying, one of the some of the students were saying one time is that, you know, if if you follow the opinion that a man's pants cannot go below their ankles, because that's considered like an act of ostentation and and kibir and, and showing off and so on, and that below it is in the in the hellfire and one of the hadith. Um, but then what they'll do is then some people you find them they they pull their pants above their ankles because letting it below their ankles is an act of arrogance. So then they pull it above their ankles and then have arrogance towards the others who don't do it. <laughs> so now you kind of like miss the point, right? You, you, you did something that was not supposed to be arrogant and then you allowed your heart to open up to arrogance. So the idea is someone can do something that's right, but still uh, be tested by what comes as it. So we're, we're going to come to that, inshallah. Imam Ghazali, he talks about this in a lot of detail. And a very uh, important work, although some of it should probably be, be taken with a grain of salt. But it's Imam Ghazali on disciplining the soul and breaking the two desires. Um, this is from the Ahya. And he says in the beginning of the section on food, the following. It's a long quote, so just beware in advance. I, I gave you sufficient warning. It's a long quote. So Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, he said, The greatest of the mortal vices which a man may harbor is the desire of the stomach. And of course, as we mentioned before, uh, when he or she or man or he, it's not gender specific. These are uh, applied to both genders. The greatest of the mortal vices which a man may harbor is the desire of the stomach. Because of it were Adam and Eve, upon whom be peace, expelled from the abode of permanence into the abode of humiliation and poverty. For although they had been forbidden the tree, their desire overcame them so that they ate from it, and their private parts did become apparent unto them. After the belly, which is the very wellspring of desires, and the source of desires and diseases and disorders, comes the desire for relations with the opposite gender, and, op and, and a voracious appetite in that kind of behavior, and then yearning after fame and wealth. So he's saying, first comes the issue with food, then comes the issue of a person's sexual desires, then comes the issue of yearning after fame and wealth, which are no more than means which enable one to indulge one's greed and desire in still greater measure. And after acquisition of fame and wealth come the several kinds of uh, frivolities, competitions and jealousies. They also give rise to the vices of ostentation, boasting, competition for wealth, and arrogance, which in turn lead to rancor, envy, enmity, and hate, which go to cause iniquity, injustice, and corruption. So if you see what he's saying, he's taking it from, the, from one's food, and the desire that's related to food can then infect so many different areas. Um, this is why I told everyone to get the pie first, the apple that we got first, yeah. They also give rise to all of these things which lead to those. All of these things are the consequence of paying insufficient heed to the stomach. 
and of the arrogant exulting which is begotten of satiety and eating one's fill, were the bondsman only to humble his soul through hunger, and thereby narrow the courses which the devil pursues within him, it would give itself up to the obedience of God and would renounce the way of exaltation and excess, so that he would be preserved from being dragged by these things into a preoccupation with the world and into preferring the present abode to which it is, which is to come, uh, to that which is to come, and would never be so avid for worldly things. Okay, so this is uh, his introduction. Of course, like I said, I've said before, sometimes when you deal with um, great scholars, what they say is so eloquent that you really don't like to just give you the idea. Would have ruined it if I was to summarize it. But I think that it's very powerful. The idea is that in disciplining the nefs with food, you learn a lot of other discipline. And in not disciplining the nefs with food, you actually open the way to a lot of other problems. Uh, because it's, it's really hard. It really is. You know, like when you come and the food looks really good and you just tell yourself, you know what, I'm just going to eat a little bit more. I'm just going to eat a little bit more. I just want to do this. I want to do that. I want to enjoy these things. Of course, you can have nice things in life. But what he's really focusing on here is the issue of like how deeply invested is your nefs in this action and are you actually you know feeding a, a base capacity which is going to lead you into potentially other problems uh, because it's there in the end so he mentions uh, 10 then benefits to hunger Imam Ghazali mentions 10 benefits to hunger in this section so we'll go through them uh, one by one the first benefit of hunger is the purification of the heart, the illumination of the natural disposition, and the sharpening of one's insight. So this is basically that the heart is clearer when one is not always filled with food. So this was the argument that he's making. You know, this he says even children when they eat too much, they're not able to memorize as well. This <laughs> is one of the examples that he gives. And there's a lot of quotes and different things that are said. Uh, in between, but we're not going to um, spend too much time on them. But the idea is that the, the mind and the heart is clearer when one is not filled with having like all the food that they want at all times. Uh, Abu Yazid al-Bistami, he said, hunger is a cloud. Whenever the person is hungry, their heart rains down wisdom. It's a beautiful kind of imagery that this hunger is like a cloud. When the cloud is there, there's a little bit of hunger in the person then their wisdom comes out of them. Uh, you know, you don't have to... And that's why I said some of it has to be taken with a grain of salt. If you read some of what Imam Ghazali talks about, he takes this pretty far. And, uh, you know, perhaps that's not something that's uh, so relevant or uh, important for, for many people. But there is definitely something to be learned from a little bit of discipline in this regard. The second is that there's a softness of the heart that comes as a result of it. And Abu Sulaiman al-Dharani, he said, Worship is sweetest for me when my belly cleaves to my back. So basically he's saying that, that when, when I'm not full is when my worship is so much better. And you can think about this. I mean, think about Ramadan. You know, when you stand at Ramadan on a night when you actually control yourself at dinner, praying tarawih is very nice. But if you stand in Ramadan and tarawih on the nights when you eat way too much, and you can barely even stand, and you feel like you shouldn't be there, 
and you can't control the burps that are coming out of your mouth and all of these other kind of things that you see a lot of times from people in Salah, then it's much different. Right? The experience is much, much different. Uh, so there's, there's a softness of the heart that, co- that comes also um, with this. The third is that there is an abasement uh, of the person uh, that, that happens as a result. And this is, of course, not an abasement that is like a humiliation uh, in terms of being humiliated by others or something like that. But there's a, there's a positive humiliation in, in, in one's um, humbleness in front of Allah that can come with being hungry. When you, when you have more hunger, you have less likelihood to, to kind of like feel so important. You feel more of a need. So there's a, there's a humility that comes uh, along with this that's very important. The fourth one is that one comes never to forget God's trials and torments or those who are afflicted by them. So of course when one feels hunger, uh, especially if it's not something that they... Um, when it's something that they know their hunger is going to end. right? Like if you're in a position where you can afford food. You're not hungry because you have to be hungry. You're hungry because, which is a different problem, which probably we'll come to in a little bit. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's you're hungry because you're choosing to lessen your food intake in order to discipline your soul. So in doing so, you realize that you know there is uh, a level of difficulty and struggling that comes along with being hungry. Right? And, and that many people are then struggling with this as well. So it, it opens one eye, one's eyes to the trials and torments of others. So I want to welcome Abdullah and, and Jesse. <laughs> um, and I assume Abdullah's mom. Welcome, welcome. Alhamdulillah. Uh, it's, a, it's always a blessing to have our, our aunties and our uncles here. Um, so there's a fourth blessing that comes with hunger that has to do with recognizing the trials that a person goes through. And this actually, I think, is very, very important for spiritual awakening in general. That as long as one is completely swamped and flooding and drowning in their own privilege, it's very difficult for them to have a deeper perspective on the world. Uh, and I can, I can say this especially from my own experience, that I've spent most of my life Actually, is it most of my life? Yes, it's still most of my life. Drowning and completely uh, enwrapped in my own privilege. So I'm not capable of understanding the difficulties that other people go through. I'm not capable of understanding uh, the, the struggles that other people will go through. And as a consequence of that, I'm not capable of truly understanding what I have. Uh, or at least having a better understanding of what I have. Uh, so there's, there's a level of hunger, it's one of the fourth benefit, is that it gives people a better understanding of the trials and tribulations that others go through, which is very, very important. If we're not able, if our hearts are not able to have compassion for at least compassion and, and some semblance of uh, understanding or uh, acknowledgement, I'm I'm scared to call it like because if you're not in it, you don't really know it. But at least an acknowledgement that other people are going through things. If we don't have, you know, that compassion in our hearts, then it's very very difficult to to come towards Allah. I mean, uh, it's it's just a, it's a problem. So the fifth, he says, the fifth and greatest benefit 
lies in the breaking of all one's desires for sin and, and in achieving mastery over the soul which commands evil. This is the fifth and most important benefit of food. I don't know why he put that in the fifth. But it's an interesting question. Maybe uh, if we look at the commentary of Zabidi, we might find it. But he put it as fifth. Maybe because it's in the middle. Maybe because the number five. I don't know. But the greatest benefit lies in breaking oneself to the desire of committing sin. Because, and see, this is, and this is a question that comes up a lot. People ask, you know, um, <laughs> I think sometimes you get these questions online. Uh, how can I, you know, uh, just a quick question. How can I stop um, doing this or that? Like, it's not a quick question. Is that everything is interrelated. You know, like the ability to break one's desires and get up at Fajr is interrelated to the ability to control one's food intake, is related to the ability to control one's gaze, is related to the ability to control one's speech, is related to the ability to not want to lord and have power and authority over other people. All of these are interrelated because they all go back to the same issue, which is the quality of the person's heart. If the heart is diseased, its disease is going to show in many places. And if the heart is healthy, the healthiness is going to show in many places. So the fifth and greatest benefit is that it helps the person in breaking their desire for sin. And this can maybe help, you know, when you're trying to limit the food intake. Think about what is that sin that I'm struggling with, that I'm really having a hard time about. And then you stop your food intake with the realization that what I'm doing right now is going to help me later with that other thing. These are all interrelated. <clears> Dhunun <throat> said, this is a very interesting thing for Dhunun to say, never have I eaten my fill without then committing or wishing to commit some sin. He's saying whenever, and Dhunun was a great spiritual master, says that whenever I fill my stomach with all of this food, then I find myself being led into other actions afterwards. Um, so, you know, it says, the least thing that is deflected by hunger is sexual desire, and also the desire for speech. For in the case of a hungry person, the desire for unnecessary talk is not aroused. Uh, but then, you know, people who eating all the time, like constantly fulfilling their desires, and they also do the same thing in their speech. When we talk about this, backbiting comes, lying comes, Obscenities come, slander comes, all of these issues of the tongue, uh, which I believe are going to come uh, in future sessions. So uh, we won't go into it too much. The sixth benefit is that it consists in, consists in the repulsion of sleep and the acquiring of the ability to remain awake for a long time. Okay, so what happens when you eat too much food? You sit down with the family, food looks so good, everyone eats all their food, and then they say, what? I need to take a nap, or I need some tea. Right? Why do you need the tea? You need the tea to like wash the food out and to fight the sleepiness. <laughs> it's a double impact. Helps you with the food digestion, and then it also combats the sleepiness that comes as a result. But it happens, right? If you overeat, you find yourself tired. You get the food coma, right? You get the food coma. So, you know, a lot of that's one of the advices they give in the books on seeking knowledge. So that the person who seeks knowledge, wants to seek knowledge, they shouldn't eat too much food. Because if they keep eating too much food, number one, they're going to waste time eating. And number two, they're going to waste time being tired. <laughs> You're going to be tired, you won't be able to study properly, you won't be able to think properly, and so on. Um, number seven is that 
Lengthy acts of worship are made easier. So the person doesn't eat too much food. Lengthy acts of worship are made easier. Since um, less time is funny, actually. Food prevents a man from worshiping much, since he needs a time in which he busies himself with eating, and may require time for buying and cooking food as well. They need then time to wash their hands and to pick their teeth, and they make many visits to the restroom because they drink too much, and all of this time it could be spent in other things. <laughs> of course, this is a very high standard. Like, you shouldn't leave the room today hating our lives. But just recognizing that there's an ideal. Uh, that in the, and that there are people up to today that live according to these ideals. Uh, and they are great people. So it's, but uh, everything in life has stages and steps. So if you find that... Uh, you know, maybe you're not able to get to the top level. It's probably because you didn't take the lower steps. Just take the lower steps. Inshallah, it's a reminder to all of us. So it can, uh, can prevent the person from being able then to engage in all kinds of worship because they're spending uh, time eating. So there's a, a good story here. One of these nice stories. Uh, a Sari said, Once I saw Ali Jorjani eating barley porridge with his fingers. What made you do this? I asked him. I have calculated, he replied, that the difference between chewing bread and eating in this way is 70 subhanallahs. So I have not chewed bread for 40 years. <laughs> this is obviously, like I said, some of these stories, there's some hyperbole in them. But the idea is the person is very interested in their time. So if I cook it this way, or if I cook it this way, or if I eat it this way, or if I eat it that way, it's going to have a difference. Um, the other thing that he says, and I'm sure some people can relate to this, I've seen people uh, struggle with this. Among the things which are made impossible by excessive eating are retaining the condition of ritual purity and spending much time in the masjid or in acts of worship because they can't keep their wudu because there's too much food in their system, right? The eighth benefit is that bodily health results from eating little. This is a very important one. Okay, so the eighth benefit is that bodily health results from eating a little bit. The, the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ is clear, although often not completely cited. So one-third for food, one-third for water, one-third for air is the second half of the hadith. The first half of the hadith is a few morsels of food are enough for the child of Adam. And if they're going to eat more, then one-third for food and one-third for air and one-third for water. So this is like a second half. But one-third for air, that's like the highest level. You know, it's just, you should go, not beyond that. Um, so, but a lot of bodily health relates to eating, not too much. Just try to eat decent food. Of course, I've, as I've said many times before, I'm not the one who has mastered these things. I'm simply the one who's playing the role of conveying to you what the masters have done. So it's not that I am myself good at this, but that I myself need benefit. I need to increase in this as well and improve on this as well. See, she's really need to bear witness to what I'm saying. Say, I bear witness that this man that I live with does the same. It's, it's true. He doesn't practice it. So eating a little bit is beneficial. Yes. Because the stories that are mentioned from Imam Ghazali are obviously very amazing, but we, it's hard to even imagine a person who would do that. You know, so mm -hmm. there are today in our time amongst our scholars and shayukh people who have a very particular diet and mm -hmm. um, uh, just a 
one, I just wanted to share one example of when my husband and I were able to visit a scholar and um, we happened to visit him on a Thursday and uh, he planned a schedule that day so that we were busy the entire time. And I mean, there was like walks, there was going up hills, there was, I mean, he had us going all over the place and I was exhausted, the scholar's like past his 60s and this didn't, wasn't even breaking the sweat and, and um, we had had breakfast but I, I realized now that the scholar was actually fasting and um, mm. then it was time for he planned to have dinner after mother time. And um, when the food came, I just remember, even though we were not fasting, <laughs> the way we ate compared to the way he ate. And he's, again, like an old man, you know, and mm. it's just something that you realize, you know, is it shatana mabainana, you know? Yeah, like mabainana. Between Allah, and, but he's someone who lives in the world today, in America, and is, a, and is an amazing scholar, an amazing personality. Um, and just witnessing that a 60-year-old man can do this, then yeah, he's not old. He's young, but it's a good accomplishment. More energy than us. He had he had a more youthful spirit and energy, and I would say even intellect than than us. But I think that's because Allah sustains those people in a different way than us. They don't need as much food as we need because they've been blessed with a different form of sustenance, and that's developed over time. Mm. Yes, it very well may well be, and and you know to to bring it to a completely materialistic realm, there's a lot of people who are very disciplined about their food just because they want to look good. So <laughs> you don't have to go into even that whole realm, but there's a lot of people who do that. Yeah, in this session. Well, there's another whole realm of individuals who are disciplined with their food because food is their medicine and food is their health, and if you really take the time to realize how much of our food is not food mm-hmm. uh, and how much of it's chemically laden and directed toward ill health, also ruining your penal gland, etc. It's, um, you know, once you learn these things and then you try to buy something healthy from the store, you realize you can barely buy anything. Mm-hmm. And even in a health food store, you have to reject most of it. So mm-hmm. there's that whole discipline. And I just want to say, yeah. In the case, it talks about in Ayah 19, you know, people back when they weren't living in a chemical society, you know, they were commanded to go and fetch the cleanest food. Yes. And, you know, that strikes me always because they didn't have a chemical society mm. that we have now, whether this mm. is a true account of real people, but even historically, they didn't have the chemicals that we have today. They had to worry about the rare poisonous food or food mm. that's gone bad. But but they were commanded to fetch the cleanest food. And so I think that's so appropriate today. Because today our food is so harmful. Mm. And not just to ourselves, but to our communities. That's a beautiful reflection. Thank you. Really, really good reflection, mashallah. Yeah, they were the, the cleanest food. Yeah. And as we kind of mentioned before too, um, that there's a relationship between this and the person's spiritual health. You know. Uh, oh, you messengers, eat from the good food, eat from the good, pure food, and do righteous deeds. 
So the relationship between eating the good food and doing righteous deeds is very close. Um, and absolutely, so, so much of the food that we uh, are, exp- so much of the food that we are exposed to today uh, is, is not really food. Yeah. Be kind to the animals when you are slaughtering them, the least amount of pain. We forget, or we don't care to know, how our animals for food are raised, especially in this country and among other countries. It's the most inhumane way. It's factory farming. Yeah. And so I just often thought and think that it applies to that as well. It's just not how you... Right slaughter the animal, but it's how you raise that animal that how the animals treat your body. Yeah, absolutely. It's all interrelated. Yeah. Yes, sister. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Nash. Yes. 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 So, if we don't have that sakina, and the sakina is from following the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi right? So because we don't do that, we are going through all this. We, we, we have to hear Ghazali, we have to, why? Already in the Quran, it's talking about Qadaflaha man dasah. Qadaflaha, you know? So it is about our nafs, the lower nafs. So uh, I just want to know if Allah talk about la tuqsidu fil don't transgress in this earth. Are we looking at the kufar only or is it about us? So my question is, if the Prophet said one third, one third, uh, and Allah said, are we transgressing? <laughs> it's very possible. Yeah. Eat and drink and don't transgress the bounds. It's very possible that many times you're transgressing the bounds. Um, and you know, sometimes we don't want to hear these things. Like, Imam al-Sarakhsi from the Hanafi school was very clear on his opinion on overeating. His opinion on overeating was that it's haram. And again, these are not the easiest. I'm not, I'm not the one who's always applying this. I'm tra- I transgress myself as well. But he gave very interesting reasoning for that. And it's going to come right now as well. But he said one of the, the reasoning for overeating being haram, number one, is that you're supposed to eat in order to bring benefit to yourself. And in overeating, you actually bring harm to yourself. Which is actually this eighth point, right? Eating little brings benefit to yourself. So if you overeat, you bring harm to yourself. The second thing he says is that if you overeat, then you wasted food and money in a place where it was not of benefit when it could have gone to those who were in need. Uh, So you ate extra food that you didn't need and actually caused you harm rather than giving it to someone who needed it or you spent food You spent money on food that was uh, more than what was needed. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide us To help us inshallah It's a process like Ali said. It's a process. Yes I said that we're not supposed to waste food and when you have food in your plate that you cannot finish, and you're not supposed to throw the food away. So what do you do with that food? Mm. Yeah. So this people say different things. Okay. So depends. I mean, the first best way to deal with it is not to take too much food or make too much food, right? Mm-hmm. 
But if, if the next best thing would be to give it, if you can actually physically give that food to someone who needs it, that would be a good thing too. Although sometimes in America there's laws against that. Uh, but you know, that's, that is what it is. But they said that the least thing that you can do is put it somewhere where at least an animal can eat it. If someone can, something can eat it. You know, okay, like, an animal can wait and animal can eat it. Mm -hmm. or, like, yeah. Yeah. or you can eat it later. Rice is forbidden for the birds here. Rice is? I don't know. It's, it's, we have a lot of laws here that I'm not. Maybe uh, Zena can <laughs> can help us with that one. <laughs> okay. So number nine. Number nine. Nine benefit lies in reduced expenditure. Number nine benefit is in reduced expenditure. So you're not spending too much money on these things. And the tenth benefit is that the person is enabled to put others before themselves and to give in charity to the orphans and the poor that which is in surplus of their own wants. So they're able to then uh, prefer others over themselves. They're able to give... I'm sorry? What did you say the tenth is? The tenth is this one. To, uh, the person is enabled to put others before themselves and to give in charity to orphans and poor because they're able to control their own desires and needs. So these are ten benefits that he mentions uh, related to food. Um, but then, as we said, the verse goes on to say that sometimes hunger is some, some, that hunger is sometimes worse than satiety. So all of this is about not eating too much, about not being full of food. But then, if you remember, the verse starts by saying fear, having fear, hunger as well as satiety. So it's not about necessarily one or the other, but it's about what's relating to one or the other, is the nafs. So the thing that you're worried about in the end is your nafs. Your nafs could be involved with eating the food, your nafs could be involved with not eating the food. Right? So uh, again, there's two trials that, can be, that a person can be afflicted by in not eating the food. So in, in, in being on the side of hunger, there's two trials that the person can have. The first is that the soul is actually unable to leave those desires. You know, you push the soul too hard, too fast. And then what happens is what the person does then, because they want to be known as someone who, who controls their food, right? And they're pushing their soul, they're pushing, but they're pushing it so hard that what they end up doing is actually in front of the people they don't, they control themselves, and then when people aren't around, they go and do stuff that is, you know, they eat things that nobody knows they're eating or that's going on and so on and so forth. So this is obviously an issue. And the second trial is that um, they become arrogant. So on the first one, Imam Ghazali said something interesting. He said the Gnostics, you know, the people of, of knowledge of Allah, they were also tired, they were tried with desires and even with sins. But they were not tried with ostentation, deceit, or concealment. So these are different levels. Like committing a sin is one thing, but being uh, arrogant, being wanting other people to look at you and praise you and all that kind of stuff, being deceitful, you know, being two-faced, concealing information. These are whole different levels of sins. So he's saying that these people who know Allah, they're tried with desires, they're tried with even sins sometimes, but they don't fall into this other side which is ostentation, deceit, and conceitment. This is the perfect Gnostic renounces their desires for the sake of God and affects their presence in himself 
in order to diminish the respect in which other men hold them. So basically the idea here is that the person will give up the desire and they will not even let people know that they gave up that thing because they don't want people to recognize them for giving up that thing. Okay? And then one of them used to go, he says one of them used to go out and buy delicious things and display them in their house even though they would never eat them. So obviously this would be delicious things that are not going to go bad. But, you know, you put things, even though, because you don't want people to be like, wow, mashallah, this person is, see, because then they're going to recognize you for it, and then you can have that disease of wanting to be recognized. Um, so the idea then is, again, that the person uh, doesn't, you know, fall into this. This is the first trial, is that they end up faking it, and faking it in a bad way, you know. The second trial is that they uh, are arrogant about it. So, you know, they give up their food. This is like the ankles thing that we talked about. They pull up the pants, but they're looking down on everyone who doesn't pull up their pants. Right? So now, you, 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 it's like someone who prays so much, and they're like very proud of themselves because they pray so much. So you kind of miss the point. It's, the whole thing is messed up. Not in the sense of like, I'm happy that I'm doing a good deed, but in the sense of, I'm so much better than all these people. And religious people, religious quote-unquote people, fall into this all the time. This kind of like, I'm so religious, I'm so good, you're so bad, because I do these things, and you don't do these things, supposedly, according to the limit of one's knowledge. So it's very much like the person, rather than just being worried about their own journey towards Allah and their relationship with Allah and seeking Allah, they're concerned with everyone else. And how everyone else has these issues and they don't have these issues and mashallah they're so great. And he says, by doing this the person has merely disobeyed a weak desire, namely that of food, and surrendered to a desire which is far worse, the love of status. So they left food, which was, you know, this thing that they were supposed to leave. But in doing so they actually submitted to a problem that was way worse. Which is that they wanted people to respect their status and love how, how you know, important they are and all that kind of stuff. So this is verse number 22. Looks like we get to the next one. Verse 23. وَاسْتَفْرِغِ الدَّمْعَ مِنْ عَيْنٍ قَلْ امْتَلَأَتْ مِنَ الْمَحَارِنِ وَلْزِمْ حِمْيَةَ النَّدِمِ So inshallah we're going to continue this one next time. But we'll start it now. Which is empty out the tears from an eye that has stuffed itself with forbidden sights. Hold hard to a diet of penitence. They're saying now, if you're going to take this path, then this, these eyes that have been filled, they filled themselves with things that they were not supposed to fill themselves with. Now empty them with tears. And hold hard to a diet of penitence, meaning repentance and tawbah and so on. So the eye, you know, the, the scholars, they say that the eye is an entryway to the heart. That if you spend time looking at things, or spend time, whatever you spend time observing is going to have a position in your heart. And so if you spend time observing good things, which you could, could be watching good people, you could be learning things that are a benefit, you could be doing any number of things, and then that will land in the person's heart. Or the eyes could be, you could be pondering nature, be looking at the ocean, thinking about how miraculous the ocean is and how amazing the hereafter is in comparison to this world and how the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his, and his knowledge 
are like a sea without shore, you know, and all of these things that are just incredible. We look at the mountains and think about the amazingness of creation. You could look at human beings and think about the amazingness of creation. You could do any number of things with the eyes. Or you could do other things. That's why Imam Ghazali he says that the eye, you're supposed to use the eye and that which it was created for. So the eye was created to give you a level of guidance in darkness. You know, like whereas you wouldn't be able to figure out where you're going if you're not able to see. And you wouldn't be able to take care of needs that you have in order to live your life if you're not able to see. He says, and the eye then is also supposed to be a means by which the person is guided to Allah and by which they ponder the signs that are in the heavens and the earth. This is part of it's why the eye exists. The eyes exist so that we can take in lessons and guidance from, from the lives that we live that draws closer to Allah. Or the eyes then can be used for any number of things. All of the limbs have things that they can be used for to draw closer to Allah or they have means, things that they can be used in to uh, go further away. And we talked about before this concept of contemplation and how when you look at something and you recognize its beauty and then you allow the recognition of that beauty to take you to a recognition of the beauty of the creator of that thing. And then this kind of settles in the heart and you continue to do it over a period of time. It's very important. This is why one of the reasons it's very important to be connected to nature. You know, subhanAllah, I remember one of uh, the brothers in Egypt, may Allah preserve him, we were walking one time and we happened to pass by like a, a little garden. You know, in Cairo they're not so common. It's basically a concrete dust jungle. And we passed by this garden and he's like, SubhanAllah, anytime I pass by here, he's like, you feel that? This is very subtle uh, senses. Brother was like, do you feel that? I said, no. He said, the temperature is just a little bit less right next to the garden. And when we walk by the park, the air is a little bit lighter. Everything is a little bit better right next to the park. He said it reminds me of home. He was from Cleveland. He said Cleveland is a city that has many, many parks. And so it reminded him of home and so on. But it's just like this concept of you take Ibra, take a lesson from that thing which is experience. You know, from those mountains, from those trees, from the, the nature that's, that's around us is very, very important. Uh, and this is why there's even some things in the Sunnah about walking around barefoot. You know, it takes some time sometimes to walk on grass barefoot. So it has to be connected to it, to walk on dirt barefoot, to sit on the ground. Now, there's a benefit in being close uh, to nature and to the ultimate reality of things. So the, this, these eyes then are meant to be used in, in taking benefit from, from that which is around us that's supposed to bring us closer to Allah. Uh, but then sometimes they're used in, in other things and the penitence we'll get to afterwards he says, uh, Imam al-Bajuri he says that the forbidden sights of the scholars of fiqh, of law, of halal and haram are the that which you're not supposed to look at so obviously this is a lot more you know, you're not supposed to look at the aura of someone who's your own gender or the aura of someone who's your other gender uh, of the other gender you're not supposed to look at things which cause you desire you're not supposed to uh, unless of course it's a, a place where you're allowed to have desire um, and you're not supposed to look at these things he said this is the forbidden sight of the scholars of fiqh he said as to the, the people of, of, of inner knowledge and the people of spirituality the forbidden sight for them is to see anything other than Allah 
That's a deep statement. <laughs> of course, this is not this is not how we talked about. There's um, there's there's uh, the the sight of the eyes, and there's the sight of the heart. That both of these there's two different types of sight that we have here, and so the idea is that they said to see any to see the aghyar, to see everything that is ghayrullah. So, you know, basically in the end. Where is your focus in life? Your focus on Allah. As soon as he said that the people of like very high status, their vision never leaves Allah. And all of the interactions they have and all of the things that they do and all of the decisions they make in life, the only goal is Allah. He said this is a, a higher level, uh, obviously. And one person, they said, if the only thing a person did was weep over the life that had passed without worship of Allah, that would be enough. You know, like they turned away from Allah. And then they miss this opportunity to be with him, the opportunity to be connected to Allah. So this is about uh, vision. That we use vision for for that which is of benefit. And we realize maybe a closing comment that uh, as as with all blessings, vision is a, a blessing that comes with responsibilities, and uh, it's a very scary thing. You know, everything can lead you closer to Allah or it can lead you away from Allah. And sometimes, uh, th- sometimes a blessing can actually be a curse. You know, as uh, as we've said before, Ibn Atta'illah, secondary, rahimahullah, said that, <laughs> Maybe Allah gave you something, so He prevented you. And maybe He prevented you, so He gave you. You know, and it just... Uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about, like in Egypt, you would see this is very common. A number of blind people are hafal. They're half of the Quran. You know, they would sit. One sheikh that we had, you know, one of the, he was at Sheikh Suhail, spent more time with him. May Allah bless him and increase him and his family. Uh, he, he asked him one time, he said, Sheikh, how did you learn all of these things? Your eyesight is so bad. Your eyesight is like barely, you can barely read. How did you learn all these things? He said, when I was a student, the other students, may Allah bless them, they would take the books and they would take a tape recorder and they would read the book on the tape recorder. <laughs> and then they would give me the tape. So I would have the book on the tape recorder and I would just sit there and I'd put it in and I'd listen to the book. i listen to it, i listen to it, i listen to it until he memorizes it. And the Shaykh, I mean literally there used to be this, this radio program on the Cairo radio where <coughs> they uh, read they tried to make like a skit out of it or a play out of it where they would read the tafsir of Al-Qurtubi on the radio. Right? So like the parent reads a chapter and then he says, Oh son, what does it say here? And then he would read a chapter, read a couple of paragraphs, you know. And one time uh, we came to the shaykh and he was listening to this. And he would fill in the sentences. Like they're reading from the tafsir on the radio and he's just sitting there in his chair and he would fill in the sentences on the chair, you know. Because he's listening to the tapes from the time he was a child. Another one of the shiuch who, uh, again, Sheikh Sohail spent more time with him, may Allah bless him, was a scholar of Arabic language. And he was fully blind. This one was fully blind. And uh, he had memorized the entire Adfiyah of Ibn Malik, you know, and grammar and so on. And he had actually memorized also the commentary of Ibn Aqil on the Adfiyah. So he'd come to the class and he'd just be sitting there. He'd say, okay, take out your piece of paper. He'd take out your paper and he'd be like, Ibn Malik says so-and-so, and he'd recite it. He'd say, write it down. And they say, and this is the commentary, write it down. And then he would start explaining it. Just, he's fully blind, just sitting there. 
And really one of the most impactful experiences we had was these two shaykhs. See what happened was Sheikh Sohail enrolled in this program. And it was a two-year program and it was brand new. And he went to the first year and there were a couple students. And he went to the second year and none of the other students went to class. So literally every subject, <laughs> tafsir, fiqh, uh, Arabic, like every subject you can think of, it was Sheikh Suhail and the Sheikh <laughs> by himself. <laughs> and then alhamdulillah it came to a point where like we arrived and then he would take me to some of the classes with him. I think you came to some other classes too. And, you know, he would, uh, so sometimes it would just be like, that's it. And so one day, uh, the first one, Sheikh Ibrahim, he passed away actually, the one who was fully blind. Uh, he was teaching the Arabic class and then Sheikh Ali came afterwards was the one who was teaching tafsir so Sheikh Ali comes in and like Sheikh Ibrahim is getting ready to go and he tells him Sheikh Ibrahim why don't you stay and like we can we will read the book together like we'll have fun it'll be a nice time and we'll read these are like really old beautiful people right it's like just say you know we'll have a good time he's like okay he stays <laughs> they're super poor anyways they're not going anywhere I don't even know how they get home honestly people are like I don't I so he sits down and he starts reading, you know, tells Sheikh Sohail, read from the tafsir, and he reads from the tafsir, and then he's like, you know, he starts, Sheikh Ali will start commenting, he's like, and then he would jump, like, Sheikh Ibrahim, what do you think of the Arabic structure of this sentence? Which would give us some benefits from this, and then he would start to break it down, and they just like pass back and forth. Both of them, one of them's completely blind, the other one can barely see. SubhanAllah. There's another masjid in the neighborhood, the, the imam there, just a regular imam, fully blind. The, all the salawats and stuff, he leads them. And the most beautiful Qur'an I ever heard in my life was from a man who's fully blind. Old man. You know, if people go to Egypt, you know, Hadiqat al-Azhar. Who knows, maybe if you go, you might find him. If anyone goes to Hadiqat al-Azhar, go on Jum'ah. And then afterwards you can... Uh, there's, a, there's no place to pray Jum'ah in the park. So you have to cross the street and like walk through the graves and the random areas. And then there's this little... <laughs> you find it and you go there and the sheikh was there I have no idea who he was or what his history was or anything else he's just sitting there really old man fully blind and then he reads the Quran like subhanAllah you feel like you're not in this world ajib 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 the way he was reading the Quran like it's not it's not your body that's reading the Quran at that time like incredible it's just a few minutes before Jummah and then at Jummah they let him you know, lead the prayer afterwards. But my point is that someone can have vision and not see what matters in life. And someone can have no vision and have very, very deep understanding about what matters in life. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to always guide us towards Him and to help us to have the good of this life and the next and to forgive us of our sins and our shortcomings. Ameen. Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam